year on year about 100,000 children and young people needing a home outside of their biological family. There's just not enough foster care within the United Kingdom. And so Home for Good looks to the church and says there's 50,000 churches in the United yeah. Kingdom. That means that even if one person, couple or family in every church in this country said, look, would you, the church, support me if I opened up my home? Well, then we would be the solution to the tune yeah. of a half of caring for all those young people. And then obviously, if that happened twice within every church, we would eradicate the need for the care system. And that, to me, Si, feels like eminently possible. Welcome, everybody. This is Simon Gilbo with Inspired. Inspired, if you're new to us, is all about meeting mates of mine from uh, all sorts of different walks of life, some very high profile, some totally behind the scenes, but all of them with a common denominator that they've seen God at work in their lives. They've been through some sucker punches. Uh, they're willing to share in a really honest, nitty gritty way. And, you know, we're bombarded by so much bad news, aren't we? Relentless ugh, from, from the media. And, and we just need to hear good news and we need to be stirred our faith. That's the point of Inspired. I have no doubt that in about 50 minutes time, having listened to our guests, that you will leave uh, excited and envisioned and stirred for your own journey with Jesus. All right, that's what we're shooting for. And this week, I'm really thrilled to have with us Tan Bright. Welcome, Tan. Hello. So great to have you. So Tanya, Tanya, who is Tan to her friend, um, we went we back about 15 years, I think it was, we met at St. John's <laughs> Ealing. You were doing some youth stuff. I think that was where we first met. Yeah. Um, I'd always heard about you through your sister because I, I was at university. I was at Loughborough University with her sister, Ness, who's That's now right. married to Rich, and uh, they're doing fantastic stuff, and we'll get them on a different podcast sometimes. Then you're, you're also very involved in Spring Harvest. I think yeah. we, we've, we've overlapped there. And last time I saw you, Tan, was at the big church festival. I think you were just recovering from surgery. You didn't look in a great way. Has, has it been a... <laughs> Has it been a rough few months? <laughs> um, I've actually had a, um, a hysterectomy, which happens to oh, us women about this age of 50. Right. And um, it, was a, it was a bit of a shocker, but we got through it. Yeah. Oh, well, well done. Um, <laughs> but, right, before launching you off, she, uh, Tan is CEO of, of Home for Good. And the aim of Home for Good is to find a home for every child who needs one okay. uh, throughout the UK, through, be it through fostering adoption, whichever channel. She has uh, herself adopted Mac and Charlie. She's uh, doing that as a single mum. She's a complete legend, and I'm really excited to hear her story. So, Tan, let's just kick off. I don't, I don't know much about your background. Let's go, go back as far as you like. Tell us about your childhood, teenage years. What are they like? Well, yeah, that's interesting because obviously you've just referenced Ness and Rich, and so oftentimes, uh, Simon, when people either make the connection or somebody tells them that that we're sisters, there's almost a disbelief because yeah. <laughs> there's just not a natural, <laughs> obvious sort of, oh, of course that makes sense because we neither look like each other nor sound like each other. And our upbringings, even though we were brought up in the same nuclear biological family, uh, we experience life very different to each other. And so my experience, my lived experience in my family was one where I largely felt frustrated, angry and bored. Mm -hmm. And that sounds really harsh because my parents 
were beautiful people. They yeah. uh, came to faith when they got married in their mid-twenties. They tried to do life as best they could. They were in a sort of a post-modern expression of marriage, which meant that mum was this hugely creative type who was singing and dancing on the showboats in Australia and then was sort of ushered back home to marry dad, who she had met some months before at a working men's club in Rochester. And mm -hmm. so mum really in one sense sort of had to succumb to the marriage of the day as it were and dad went out to work and she stayed at home and it probably in today's world side they would have done it the other way around mm. and mum would have stayed the creative expressive extrovert and dad would have probably flourished being at home <laughs> but it meant that then when um my sister and i were born and were raised um we were in an in an environment where really we had a bored mum at home mm -hmm. and and a dad who was stressed to the eyeballs and uh, he had a, a heart attack on the motorway on the m40 going into work one day only aged 45 and uh, really that then meant that Dad never really re-entered the workforce again in quite the same way, of which, right. my gosh, I don't know about you, love. I'm now 50 and I, I can't imagine, A, having a heart attack and B, it then having an impact on how and when I, I worked, really, from mm. this point on. And so it meant that by the time I got to 16, I was really in this sort of middle class, dare I say it, slightly sort of nominal in terms of faith, environment, and an older sister who I think it would be a really fair analysis to say we just didn't get on. We didn't have a connection point. There wasn't a appreciation of who each other was. And so I left home uh, really just um, out of nothing other than sort of desperation to experience something. Mm -hmm. And as you can imagine, Sai, uh, you know, for a relatively unhinged 16-year-old <laughs> with not a lot of self-worth or identity and a quite a complex view of faith, quite a, a, a misunderstanding, if we can call it that, of who God was, is, mm -hmm. might be for me, just meant that I entered into the world of chaos and mayhem and really brought anyone else along with me into that. I think it was a sheer relief, Sai, sheer relief for mum and dad and my sister that I, I exited and I can totally appreciate and understand why that would have felt like a relief that I had gone mm. from the family home. But I sadly, Sai, then entered into a whole world of drugs and alcohol and sex and really becoming something of much less than, as we know, Father God, the beautiful Father God would want for me. Mm. Um, but there I found myself for a few years, um, unable to express who I was as a person and getting more and more lost in trying to find hedonistic ways to feel myself. And that ultimately was all I was trying to do is to feel God and mm. to feel myself within that but found a multitude of really destructive ways to do it through. So, so that was teenage years. Mm. And did it take getting to the bottom of the barrel then? Uh, yes, in as much as that I probably couldn't have got far more to the bottom, <laughs> constantly sort of every day hung over, you know, a, a, different, a different person in the bed waking up and sort of exiting rooms and places and spaces you know, trying to sort of hold down a job of some sort. But by age 18, 
I don't know how. Well, I do know how. I'd lied on my CV and uh-huh. I'd walked into a temping agency and told them that I, I did actually have a qualification. Um, and, um, and then when I, in the agency, I'll never forget it, they said, well, you need to do a typing test. And I sort of blagged my way through. Yes, yes, of course. And they said, well, we'll need you to do sort of a, a, a test to show us how many words per minute, because if we're going to get you a temping job as a secretary, then we need to know how you can type. Well, it just so happened that the lady went out for lunch. And so with two very fast fingers, I rapidly made my way through a typing test, but um, I got the number of of words that I needed, but of course, without her seeing in fact that it was just two very fast fingers. And she placed me into a large multinational company as a temp. And A, I couldn't quite believe that I had managed to get a temping job. And B, because up to that point, I'd just really sort of been in pubs and clubs and all sorts of things. And I found myself in a very professional environment, side, very professional, mm-hmm. with people who had aspiration and who articulated themselves and who were going somewhere and who had a certain sort of energy and hunger about them. Now, I found this very appealing because the last few years prior to that for me had been really quite sordid. Mm. I think it's probably the best way I can describe it. And people with very little aspiration. And I ended up working really hard and figuring out that actually I could learn quite quickly. Because at school, now in my later life, I was diagnosed with ADHD um, only about a few years ago. And the difference I found when in the workplace was when I could learn at my pace and speed and I was learning stuff I wanted to to learn and I was interested in that wasn't about learning things by rote and then having to regurgitate information to do some pointless test on some language I never thought I would ever use again Latin or otherwise and Mm -hmm. suddenly I'm in an environment whereby I'm learning things about commercial Um, integrity and I'm learning about supply chain logistics where I finally understood that if you buy somewhere in this country and you have to get it to the UK, there's a whole long process by which you have to do that, do it well in order that it arrives on the same date. I found it fascinating. Mm. And so I worked really, really hard and I just became a learner and I'd never enjoyed learning before. And within a matter of a few years, I'd become one of the youngest departmental directors of um, a a large department within this large multinational. And then from where I just kept getting promoted. From there, I then went into international procurement. And from that, I went into international contract negotiation. And um, by my mid-20s, I was traveling the world on business class flights. Honestly, still can't believe it to this day, really. So honestly, it's one of those things I look back and I think, my goodness. And and having ditched the sordid side and and just having to up your game or or sort of schizophrenic on that level? Yeah, partially schizophrenic in as much as that was not able to shed what I would call a deep sense of Mm self-loathing. And so sabotage comes into that. And again, you may sort of think, gosh, she's sounding like she's pulling out some psychological terms here. But I've done a huge amount of work on myself over these many years, and particularly actually the last decade, particularly done more work on understanding myself than at any other point in my life. And so acknowledge that when you feel 
as though you've done wrong or are carrying shame, which was a very large part of my life for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. You sabotage things because it's better to sabotage so it goes wrong than to almost feel as though you're going to try really hard to get it right and it still then fails. And yeah. so even within me sabotaging many things, I was still drinking very heavily. I was still in a promiscuous mindset and yet doing very well in business. And the problem is with then what was international business lifestyle, it's actually very hard to live a life of integrity unless you've got a very clear set of psychological boundaries around you and or a strong marriage mm. and or an accountability group. And I didn't have those things because I wasn't in and of faith yeah. when I was in business. Mm. And so my lifestyle really just accompanied the hedonism that came with you know, traveling to places, meeting people, having overnight encounters. And I also worked for a large international organization, which was ultimately selling and marketing alcohol. So it was almost rewarded, dare I say. I was mm. one of the few women as well, Sai, who were in the international negotiation and contract space. So being one of the few women, I almost had to then develop a, a masculine persona exterior and persona so i would drink hard party hard and then i would negotiate hard and was seen as one of the lads and mm. for somebody with my temperament um in one sense that was easy ish for me to do but my gosh did there have consequences to my well-being um and i did that for a number of years and then the moment came where i just knew it was not sustainable and, and by that, I mean, I was going through relationships, uh, you know, once every two, three months, I'd go through another relationship, both actually my girlfriends as well as sort of romantic relationships, because I just didn't know what it was to be a friend. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what it was to be a person alongside somebody that carried any worth or integrity and just got exhausted and realized that there was something about the God that my parents would speak of. And while sadly I didn't experience either in the local church environment that we were in, you know, the majority of churches we went to as a young family, Si, were not particularly focused in one sense on the God that I read about in the Bible, you know, and mm. there was this real disconnect for me that I would read these incredible stories about, you know, you know, Paul wandering around, stomping on the heads of snakes and, and you know, would survive and shipwrecks and walking out of jails because he would pray to the living Lord and walls would shake and Jesus would heal and travel the land, changing lives and hearts and minds. And then I would look at our local Marlow Bottom existence <laughs> and it just didn't correlate, right? I know Marlow Bottom. My sister lives in Marlow. <laughs> Funny. So we grew up in, or some years, was quite literally there is a place called Marlow Bottom. It was the bottom of Marlow. <laughs> American <laughs> audiences would be like, those Brits are so weird. <laughs> It's like the arse of mine. Raising the tone. <laughs> uh, so anyway, th this is the moment. This is the moment when Jesus well, broke in. This is the moment. Because I just thought, well, where was that God? Where, where was the God that I read about but didn't experience? And oh my goodness, if I could somehow be connected to that life-giving 
radical, revolutionary. If I could somehow meet with that Jesus, then I, I figure that I will suck it up and I don't care what humility pill I have to take in order to reconnect with that, even if it feels embarrassing to go back to family, mum, dad and sister, who somehow always seemingly met the God who I wanted to meet, but never quite could. So I was engaged to, I think, well, at that point, still my only, my mid-twenties to the third fella, and we bought a house in London. And and I, I just wanted to re-engage with this revolutionary God, well, actually to see whether he existed and then to and then to see whether there would even dare be a way that I might connect with him. And I found a church around the corner and so said to said fella, I'm going out shopping. And shopping was, you know, a sort of a very normal part-time spending money I didn't have on stupid things I didn't want or need. And so would sneak into this church on a Sunday morning And it just so happened that this local church round the corner from where I lived in London at that point was a black majority Pentecostal church. And the Mm. only reason that I really knew it existed was because, A, I used to frequent it when it was a nightclub. Right. And (laughs) that this was the irony, right, Si? Because back in the day, then I would go to this club and it was an Irish club and uh, it was called Top Hats. And I would roll into this club many times when the pubs would shut and I would drink and dance and smoke and all sorts of shenanigans. And I realised that this place had been sold and it must have been bought by this church because every Sunday morning I would just hear worship. Mm. And so I was partly interested to go into it to A, see how a nightclub could turn into a church, B, if I just stayed at the back, no one would know anyway. See, might I experience something of that which I wanted to see mm. if it even existed? And I yeah. walked in and it probably took four or five mornings where I would literally sit at the back and cry and would listen to people worshipping and dancing. And it was because it was a black majority church, of course, it actually had emotion in mm. it. Yeah. And it was expressive and scurry and full on. And it was very much into not only the gifts of the spirit, but into, you know, um, in one sense, you know, experiencing um, the demonic and and working very openly with exorcisms and and just removing unclean things from Mm. people who just wanted to be set free. And, you know, this was in one sense, you could say, oh, my gosh, of all the churches, Tan, you could have picked you went in bold. You know, I just, you know, I didn't walk into the local URC where we sort of read liturgy every morning. But it was what I needed, Si. It was what I needed. And uh, I experienced something of the power of God. And I saw people experiencing God. And probably for my temperament as well, I needed something experiential. Mm -hmm. Um, I've gone on in later years to really appreciate places like the Northumbria community, whereby there is a a sort of a beautiful Celtic groundedness Mm. of faith. But that's only in later years, really, that I've been able to embrace and appreciate that because I know God now. Um, And so that was it. I I gave my life to Christ all those many years ago in a nightclub in which I used to stub cigarettes out on, on the carpet. And there I was, snotty on the carpet, some many years later, giving my life to Christ and shedding all of that pain and shame and accumulated horror 
of having lived life outside of the mm. outside of the construct of of that which God had always intended for me, and and it took a while. It, it wasn't overnight. So I must have made about twenty altar calls, you know, yeah. where you go to the front, start all over again. Forgive me, God, I've I've come back, but I need to come back again. I, for me, it wasn't a one hit wonder, and I I struggled to shed some of the patterns that I had developed and. Uh, it took a while. But he's um, patient, isn't he? And he takes us where we're at. And he also so takes patient. us with our personality. Yeah. And I love that. So so the, the energy, boundless, full-on tarn doesn't have to become demure and mute. No. And, uh, you know, no. so you're just unleashed in a different way, aren't you? Yeah. So what did that look like? Well, that was quite literally it. It was unleashed and I couldn't quite believe... But the same, I thought I would become actually quiet and demure, I suppose, because of, I don't know, I guess what I had seen around me in my earlier years, you know, faith meant serious. Faith meant you no longer like jokes from like Wicked Willie and, you know, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, I just made this assumption I would change into grey. And I was just delighted to work out that, A, that's not what God had for me. And also people encouraged me to be fully me. And I really just went from being loud and extrovert for a large FTSE 100 company to being loud and extrovert for God. Mm. And so still, A, annoying a whole load of people. In <laughs> <laughs> Are you Marmite? <laughs> well, it's funny you should say that because I, I ask people that a lot. I seem to have worked out a way, say, over the years to not be Marmite, but yet also... Within that, I, I don't dilute myself, but I'm able to blend myself in a way that means I can deeply listen, I can appreciate other people's personalities, and, and I can assist and love others in a way that is right for them. Yeah. I think that just comes with maturity, doesn't it? Yeah. Just let me um, say that. So, sorry for non-UK audiences. Marmite <laughs> is this thing that you spread on your bread. It's sort of beefy, but it's not beef, is it? But you either love it or you hate it. So that, <laughs> anyway, back to the story. I mean, you either love it or you hate it. The yeah. point being about Marmite. Yeah. Um, and I'm listening. I'm sorry. I'm sure. I'm sure it would be a fair thing to say that when people encounter me you know listen if I don't rock their boat then I'm you know that you're not left in too much doubt as to where I'm going to be coming from in life and that is to be a massively big hugger who loves people who laughs loudly and who ultimately God has put in me a force of personality to fight on behalf of others yeah. and that's what I realized all along really is that all of that anger and frustration and energy that I had as a little girl it just didn't know how to be harnessed toward the right thing. Mm. And so once I had a means by which to understand myself, but also to understand that all of that energy could go towards fighting on behalf of others, everything just slotted into place. Yeah. yeah. How long did it take you, though, to find your, your sweet spot? Proper sweet spot, I would say 10, 15 years. Yeah, yeah, that's a journey, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And I'm now just turned 50 and I have an, a 10 and an 11-year-old adopted boys, full sibling brothers. And I run, as you know, Home for Good, which is a UK Christian charity finding homes from across the church, which I still believe passionately. The church is the divinely appointed vehicle yeah, for shalom and well-being absolutely. and to place children with those who love God and who are able to use the power of the church. And by the power, 
I don't just mean in the obvious way of the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean the power of relationship, of commitment to each other, of deep and profound working together for the greater good of our communities. That's the church, right? Mm. And to have children placed in that community of people who seek to serve each other. Like the way I care for Mac and Charlie, Sai, you know, we've got five core mentors who journey alongside me with Mac and Charlie by mentors. I mean, families who who just will not give up on us. They won't give up and I won't give up on them and their kids. Mm. And, you know, great big men from construction companies who can still pick Mac and Charlie up one hand each who love my boys, who Mm. help them navigate all the challenges they have, which are many and vast. And that's the church. And and so in that sense, have I hit my sweet spot now at 50? I probably would say now as a divorced, sadly divorced woman of two adopted boys, embraced and planted and rooted in a church now for many years, I am now in my sweet spot and yet I came to faith at 28 and it's taken that long to meet me in the fullness of who God called me to be. It's taken that amount of time. Hi folks, I hope 2024 has got off to a good start. I think most of you know this podcast comes out on the auspices of Great Lakes Outreach working in Burundi, which is still annoyingly the hungriest and poorest country in the world. There are so many positives. I mean, I I look look back at last year, see that we've impacted a couple of hundred thousand people in a very meaningful way. I've got all these lovely photos of prostitutes that we've helped get out of prostitution, giving them a new skill as tailors. I think of street kids that we've helped get off the streets. I think of microfinance loans that we've given out to poorest of the poor people, mainly widows who have managed to start up businesses and and are now thriving, being lifted out of poverty. Mud huts that have been able to knock down and build sort of brick houses with a tin roof and a door that can be locked to actually protect these vulnerable ladies. So many people have come into relationship with Jesus, come to faith. I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. In that context, at the same time, there have been 40% food price rises of basic foodstuffs, and there have been five hikes in the last three months of fuel, which just adds up to crippling inflation that affects everybody. It's so challenging. So if you want to back us, if you're enjoying the podcast, I'd really appreciate it, you you sewing into the work. And that's so you can go do that at greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired. We'd love it for you to journey with us. Greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired. And keep enjoying the podcast. Now let's get back to it. Well, in terms of just chronology, we, we've jumped a, a bit there. Yeah. But, but um, so I want we want to hear the Mac and Charlie story. You're, you're, we want to hear a lot more about Home for Good. But can you, you know, you talk about the divorce. It's holy ground in a sense. I don't want to pry, yeah. but it, it's helpful, isn't it? Because a lot, a lot yeah. some people think they're, they're castaways. You know, they, they cannot yeah. still serve. You know, they're secondhand goods, whatever. And yeah. uh, can you share as little or as much about that journey? Yeah, I will share some, obviously, in terms of um, my ex-husband still being uh, dad, adopted dad to Mac and Charlie. It's important that I just honour the story that went on within our family in order that Mac and Charlie don't ever have to negotiate sort of Mm. difficult stuff that, you know, they aren't aware of and probably never will be because it's my ex-husband's and I's story. But probably the headlines are, it was not a happy or... uh, a marriage whereby 
Uh, it brought the best out in each other and situations happened, which meant that it just wasn't going to be the right environment to bring up Mac and Charlie in. And and that's probably where I leave it whenever I speak publicly. Mm. Also to say I wear at all and where, where I can and where I do support a relationship with uh, Mac and Charlie and their dad. Uh, that's exactly what happens. And, and the way I figure is, you, you know, sometimes in marriages that don't work, you know, you can be a pants partner to each other, but be, a, be an okay parent, you yeah. know. And so um, that's what I navigate at this point in my life. Sai is, is the boys have a relationship with my ex-husband. And for as long as that is something that brings them um, something um, that is of quality, then that is what I will absolutely support to happen. Mm. Uh, but what it does mean in my practical day-to-day is that I am a solo um, uh, working mum of two boys with additional needs. And uh, I work full-time and I'm deeply immersed, as we've already sort of spoken about in my local community and church and that is oh my days that is enough to juggle when oh, you know yeah, i'm also seriously. i serve some amazing other charities as well on their on their leadership and on their boards and life is a full and glorious place but it, it has stretched to its side where there's some days where i do have to keep continually questioning whether i am doing the right thing and doing it in the right way. But I, because I have such an accountability group around me, um, Mm. it means that I'm not making decisions on my own. I make decisions in community. And so we still feel that, you know, by and large, what I'm doing and how I'm serving and using my time is still God honoring. And Mac and Charlie still get what they need with a highly invested mum with the community that we're based in who love and adore them. So so it's tough at times though, you know, when people kind of work out that I'm divorced and, you know, I'm still, I guess, regarded in our sort of language as an evangelical leader and the whole divorce thing still doesn't go down well in some circles. And mm-hmm. I just have to suck that up, Si, and show huge grace in that. No one will ever know the story and neither do they need to. Yeah. People just need, those who know me and love me know that I've journeyed it with as much integrity, integrity. as is possible. Yeah. And it was the right thing for us in order that myself, Mac and Charlie had uh, a means by which to develop and and, and each reach our potential. Mm. And, uh, um, you know, that's just one of the sad parts of life when it doesn't work well. God draws a bigger circle around us, Si, a bigger circle, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And the grace circle gets bigger and the embracing circle gets bigger. And um, I've mm. just found that those who I do life with, who know me well and know the reality of life, none of them have gone far at all. We have been blessed with the most loyal, significant men and women in our lives. And and that to me is as close to what I can see of God mm. as, as, you know, knowing God himself. It's the people in my life who I next most closely experience God through. Yeah. I mean, that's so good to hear. So I know you've, you know, because I've heard you talk about Mac and Charlie, you don't expose them, but their story is helpful in terms of giving us the picture of the situation in England. So why don't you just go for that? Yeah, sure. So Mac and Charlie are um, two brothers of a clan of about 13 children. Mm. 
and Mac and Charlie are the only two that were successfully placed in what we would call permanence, and by that we mean adoption in the UK. Uh, the rest um, were um, placed into ver- a variety of different residential units um, and uh, foster care. Um, we're not sadly in contact with any of their half brothers and sisters, even though it's something that I feel very passionately that mm-hmm. when the time is right for Mac and Charlie to have a connection when and if it's safe for them to do so, to have a connection with their genetic identity is really, really important. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not scared of that, Sai. You know, a, lo- a lot of families um, that I speak to, you know, there, there's a fear and I listen, I get it and I understand it that, you know, when children are adopted, you have this sort of almost... It's a trap we can fall into as adopters where you sort of feel as I just want to shut the door now and just sort of keep it all to ourselves and just make this sort of forever family thing just feel very safe and sanitized. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that children in the care system and those even who go on to be adopted, there's nothing sanitized about adoption. Yeah. You know, by itself and on itself, it's a trauma. Mm-hmm. For any child to get to a place whereby they need to have another family to live with other than their own biological family means that something's gone really wrong, right? Yeah. And therefore, I have a responsibility as the adoptive mum not to shy away from what is their pain, Mm. not to shy away from that story, but rather to embrace it and find a way whereby Mac and Charlie don't, they don't romanticise, Sai, what their biological family might look like, but rather, as I've done from day dot, before they were verbal, um, and vocal, um, I've been able to share with them about their story. So they've never not known they were adopted. I talk to them regularly, what's called about their life story. And when the time is right, I will find uh, the right way with the right agencies involved where we will have a constructive uh, connection back again to biological family. Because by the time they're 18 plus, si, what's better that I do this well and appropriately with them or they go off and do it on their own and it may not be, you know, what they expect or want it to be. Yeah. Um, and, and that's a, a real learning journey for any adopter is how do we do that with the children at the heart of it as opposed to our own heart needing to be protected from it. The children have got to come first. And so Mac and Charlie are now 10 and 11. They arrived with me when they were seven days old and 13 months, respectively. Mm-hmm. And both little lads were, uh, oh, little Charlie was withdrawing and he had head tremors and he struggled with eye contact uh, for the first wee while. And one social worker thought immediately, it's on his notes where it writes question mark autism. But actually, interestingly, Charlie, the little one, he's whilst a very small little lad for his age and uh, for his chronological age because of of, uh, his womb experience, he's doing well. He's academically holding his own. But Mac, bless him, has a few more challenges. And he's now 11 and he has a condition called fetal alcohol syndrome, which is where his womb was cognitively impacted due to an excess of alcohol. And so it's had a lifelong impact on Mac's brain and developmental capacity. And so he he's about five years uh, delayed in terms of his right. thinking and learning. So I have an 11-year-old, but it really feels like a six-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, and his learning is lifelong impacted now, Sai. So uh, Mac has what's called moderate learning disabilities. And I'm currently in the throes of a 
huge tribunal where I'm having to sadly take the local authority to court in order to get them to uh, provide Mac with the right specialist placement for his secondary experience. Uh, they've nominated a school that is totally inappropriate for him. And so the fight for an adoptive mum does not stop. And no. obviously I also run an organisation where I try and fight for children to be found the best of the best homes and find people to uh, meet the needs of children. And so I, I'm on a busman's holiday, really. So I, I live and breathe what I do in my day and I live and breathe in my day what I do in my evening. And I just figure that, you know what, there's an integrity to that as well. And I, and I would have it no other way. Mm. Give us some of the stats of the situation in the UK. So presently, um, year on year, about 100,000 children and young people uh, needing a home outside of their biological family. And the stats just keep growing, which is a really sad thing to say. Uh, COVID really didn't help for all the obvious reasons that where there was already fault lines within families, where there were struggles, what we call the, the sort of toxic trio, poverty, domestic violence and addiction, uh, oftentimes then conflate, A, when those are happening together, but also then when children were around 24-7, um, you can imagine that if there were fault lines already, then that just produced even more pressure on families that were feeling overwhelmed or isolated. And so it's just resulted in more and more children into the care system. And there are not enough foster carers, Si. There's just mm. not enough. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a fact. It's a stat. Bernardo's called it a national emergency. Mm. And it continues to be that, in that local authorities are having to place children in inappropriate accommodation. We've got teenagers entering the care system in greater numbers than we ever have before. One in four entering the care system for the first time are teenagers, 13 and above. Mm -hmm. And we've got um, stories and evidence stories of young people being placed in caravans and tents and canal boats in order to simply put something over their heads, which might be called a roof, yeah. because there's just not enough respite and or foster care within the United Kingdom. And so Home for Good looks to the church and says there's 50,000 churches in the United Kingdom. Yeah. 50,000. And in my reckoning, Sai, that means that even if one person, couple or family in every church in this country said, look, would you, the church, support me if I opened up my home? Well, then we would be the solution to the tune of a half yeah. of caring for all those young people. And then obviously, if every church looked to support, love and care for an individual couple or family to open up their home, and that happened twice within every church, we would eradicate the need for the care yeah. system. And that, to me, Si, feels like eminently possible. Because the local church is the hope of the world. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, well, I mean, I'm, I'm a, a, a involved at the next stage, which is, so in the last year, year two years maybe, our local church, which isn't, isn't a big church, St. Andrew's on Fox Hill. We've, oh, yeah. we've bought two houses 
And we've got four young ladies who've come out of the care system. Yeah. Most, I think most of them are 18 year old, maybe one's a, a bit older. And that's with Hope into Action. Ed Walker yes. actually was the first podcast we did. And he's looking at the next level up, isn't it? The, the local church is the hope of the world. 50,000 yeah. churches. Yeah. Uh, you're talking if they do, what, what if we got, we got behind one person in our church to foster, yeah. that's half the problem solved. Two, yeah. two couples doing it, that would be the whole problem solved. That's yeah. so eminently doable, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. It really is. And Ed and I have developed just a wonderful relationship over these last couple of years. And so we are seeking to see not only can we care for children in the care system, but as you say, just as you've expressed, you've got four care leaving people who are care experienced, who because of what they will have gone through, have got some um, needs that people just won't be aware of. Like Mm. even just things like budgeting or understanding the faithfulness of friendship and family will be something they may not have experienced. And so for us as the church to be able to get around not only those who are needing care and a home, but those who are care leaving is really, really important. And so it's been a joy to get to know Ed. Um, And so it's wonderful to hear that your church is already working with Hope Into Action. Just brilliant, Si. Mm. Give us a sort of your biblical go-to verses and theology for that, what you're doing. Well, funnily enough, I I always just go to Psalm 68, um, 6 onwards, and it talks about God placing the lonely in families. And and most people will always assume, Sai, that I go to the whole kind of sort of Romans, Abba Father, we were adopted and therefore, you know, we should follow similarly. Actually, you know, I don't think adoption is for everybody. And actually, I don't think that, that it is something that, you know, everybody is at that point in their life gifted to do. But I tell you what, everybody can be placed in family because let's define family. So for me, the whole family is what I expressed a little bit earlier about my community and my church. That is my family. I call them my family of choice. And Mm. God places the lonely in families. But you know who I also call the lonely one? Well, that's me. So instead of us having this rescue narrative that says, oh, bless Mac and Charlie, they were placed with me and therefore the lonely were placed in a family. I reverse that. God knew how lonely I was and how much I had a deep desire to want to care for children, be loved and uh, and love in return. And so actually my loneliness was also addressed and therefore me, Mac and Charlie became family. And God then placed us together in another family. God is a family-making God, Hmm. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, he then had this beautiful and weird idea to to have Jesus born from a single mother who Hmm. then was adopted by Joseph, who had no bloodline relation to Jesus whatsoever. So Jesus was brought up by a fella who was, by God, placed as Jesus's family. So this, for me, is the whole thing about what we as church are. We are a family-making family. Mm. And so Ch- Charlie and Mac and me, we've been placed together as family, who together have been placed in a wider family, who make up God's family. And that is what the church was meant for. It's to hold each other together well. It's not about DNA, Si. It's not about bloodline. It's all about who we are placed with in order to fully express God to and through each other. Mm. 
Hi folks, I'd love you to check out chooselife.org.uk and there you can sign up for a weekly vlog that I'll be coming out with through the coming year, Journey With Us. And also there you can buy the book if you haven't got it yet, Choose Life, 365 Readings for Radical Disciples. So why don't you join us on that journey, chooselife.org.uk. Now let's get back to the podcast. So what would you love to see come out of this, this podcast? I mean, there's obviously a bigger vision, but, you know, how can we help? First and foremost, when we know how much we are loved by Father God, when we know and appreciate that there's nothing out of reach for him, there's nothing that he will reject us on the basis of, and when that love is evident in our own hearts, then it just means our capacity to love grows and changes. And and that's really what I was inferring to earlier, Si, when I said it's taken me a long time to shed the shame and pain of what I did wrong and not really understanding myself and not understanding how I could interact well with people that would leave everyone safe and happy. And, and it's taken me this long to understand that I am just an adored daughter of the Most High, King mm. of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it's because of that I can parent Mac and Charlie in a way that shows a radical love. And it means I can receive love in a way that means that I can then be loved in order to keep giving love. And, and if that's the one thing I would want to have people hear is, is that when we are in that relationship with God, our, our, the tent pegs of our lives, and it talks, doesn't it, in scripture about enlarge your tent pegs, mm -hmm. because from there you have no idea quite how glorious the adventure can be. Allow me to place the invitation out to people to feel the love of God, to be embraced with the love of God in order that our tent pegs of our hearts be enlarged to such an extent where we can embrace the pain of others and bring people into our lives and them bring us into our lives as image bearers of Christ, which means that we can care for each other, care for children who need a home, who need love, stability and safety. And likewise, we too would allow ourselves to be placed in a family of choice whereby we can reach our fullest potential. And so are there people listening to this who think, do you know what? I can taste that the tent pegs have been stretched in my life and I've got room in my heart and home to be able to care for a child in the care system. Mm. I've got room here. I've got room in my heart because of how I'm loved that I can care for a child and help them reach their fullest potential, then we would love to talk to them, Sai. I guess that's how this might best help. Home for good, find a home for every child who needs one. Mm. So that's homeforgood.org.uk. Do check that out and uh, or, or, and think of someone else. I mean, forwarding this podcast to someone else, you think they could, they would be brilliant at it. Because yeah. as, as Tan says, it's not for everyone. But um, together as team, That's it. Uh, we, we can do this, can't we? Yeah. Um, is there anything that we've missed out that you'd want to share? Actually, I genuinely know. I just feel that, that I've expressed everything I thought I would want to. Brilliant. Okay. Well, listen, folks, um, it's meaty. It's a, it's a heavy topic. It's not a soft sell. So no. I, I wouldn't mind just... you. you, you addressing that before we close um because yeah, it's, a, it's a huge deal isn't it yeah so so i think one of the things i would also want to share is that you know it takes a village 
as we well know, you know, that classic African mm. uh, proverb, it takes a village to raise a child. And it's so much so is true for us caring for children who are living with the legacy of trauma. Uh, because there is a lot of pain and there is a lot of challenge when caring for a child from the care system because of what they will be living with. As I've shared about Mac and Charlie, there's all sorts of different diagnoses that they have as a result of their early years, ADHD and uh, um, learning disabilities, and also just the psychological impact of them navigating adoption and not being with their biological family. Mm. So I think it's a really important thing that we share that this does take a village. You know, I've got speech therapists in my immediate community. I've got counsellors. I've got those who are just willing to sit and listen. I've got those who are really great just taking the boys out to do an afternoon if behaviours are getting a bit challenging and go and kick a ball. You know, it's really important that we acknowledge that this is not about a rescue. This is not about taking a child in and everyone will feel better about the whole thing and the child's behaviours will suddenly become linear and obvious and 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 behaviorally aligned with your family construct, because that's just not the reality. It's actually a much um, needed thing that people are aware that that to go on our own growth journey when caring for traumatized mm. children is vital. Then that means that those who feel as though there's room in their heart and home, it's those types of people with that kind of thinking that means that we will be able to provide homes that can last the course. It's just really important to share that side to manage expectations. Yeah, yeah. Well, I love it that uh, that wild child, young son, um, <laughs> who was very lost and very, um, yeah, heading to destruction yeah. and uh, yeah. and carnage that the Lord has, by his grace, yeah. harnessed uh, the energy and zeal and the sense of righteous um, indignation and injustice yeah. uh, to, to be part of a beautiful story in your own individual context and leading a whole movement i know you've got you've got groups you've got offices across the country a great staff team all pulling in the same direction lots of volunteers and guys you could be you could be involved in that if it's stirring your heart go please to homeforgood.org.uk and uh, pray with your spouse if you're married or or, or or just with mates and think how can yeah. we make a difference in this area so on it's been brilliant to have you thank you for being uh, fun and deep and the whole, whole gamut of emotions I've experienced in between. God bless you loads. You're amazing, Si. Bless you too. Yeah. Oh, what a treat to have you. Listen, folks, uh, forward this to someone who needs to hear it. How you can help us, you can give us a, a, a top quality review on Spotify iTunes. Just means the algorithm will get this in front of more people so that more people can be impacted and stirred and challenged and inspired. That'd be great. I want to thank uh, Adam Thomas Steer for the editing and Mike Sanderman for the mixing. Next week, we've got another fantastic guest. So oh, I love all these different conversations. They're awesome, aren't they? So join us again next week. In the meantime, have a good week. God bless and... Toodaloo.